I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. We're going to continue in a series which we've just begun uh, in this letter which the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth in Greece. We'll be looking at verses 10 down through verse 17. I'm actually going to read, start in verse 9, uh, which transitions from what we looked at last week into this week's passage. So begin in verse 9 and read down through verse uh, 17. 1 Corinthians 1. Let's give ear to God's word. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing and now the teaching of his word. Amen. You may have heard the story of the man marooned on a desert island. And after a number of years, he is discovered by a passing ship, and when the, the team of rescuers show up, they notice three well-constructed shelters there on the island. And so they ask him, is, is there anyone else here with you? And he says, no, it's just me. And they say, well, well what are all these structures? And so he points to the first, and he said, well, well, that's my house. And the second, he said, and that's my church. He said, well, what's the, what's the third structure? And he said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Gives new meaning to the old maxim, takes it even further. Where not just two or three are gathered, but even one is gathered in Jesus' name, there can be church conflict. <laughs> now, we laugh about that in good humor, but good humor is always rooted in reality, in truth. And the sad truth is that the church is often perceived as, and in reality often shows itself to be, a divided and divisive group of people. Church conflicts and splits are a major theme throughout church history. Such that were it not for the sovereign, sanctifying, uh, uh, reconciling, unifying grace and power of God in Christ Jesus... Christianity and the church would have become extinct centuries ago. And it is a, and it's sad because as followers of Christ, we both know that that should not be the case. And deep down, we desire that it not be. 
We confess, as we did this morning, as a foundation of our faith in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic, that means one universal church, and in the communion, the the together union of the saints, those who are redeemed in Christ. And if we are truly reconciled to God and truly in communion with Christ and, and by faith with one another as members of the one holy Catholic church then we will deeply desire and diligently pursue that reconciliation and union that we already have with one another in the body of Christ. But we also know that it's much easier said than done. And conflict and division among believers remains one of the greatest hindrances to our growth and to our testimony together in Christ Jesus one of Jesus' last prayers during his, his time on earth, his, his high priestly prayer, which uh, John records for us in his gospel, the 17th chapter of his gospel, Jesus prays that those who believe in him, that is us, would be one as he and the Father are one. Our unity and our union in the church is to reflect the the unity and the union of the the triune God in whom we are united. And the reason for that, as Jesus prayed, was so that the world might know that God sent his son and loved us even as he loved his son Jesus. I mean, think about that. The greatest witness, the greatest testimony of the gospel to the world is that we are one. We are unified in Christ when we love one another as God has loved us in Jesus, which is why one of the first problems that the Apostle Paul identifies and addresses in the church at Corinth is this one of division and and disunity. Remember, this church is one that that Paul planted himself just a few years earlier and where he had seen the Spirit work mightily in bringing many to faith. And, And as we saw last week in the opening verses of this letter, he encourages and reminds them of their calling as, as God's saints together with all the saints uh, in, in other places, in other times. Gifted in every way by God's grace and kept by God's faithfulness in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. But Paul had gotten word from some members of a, a woman named Chloe's household that things weren't going too well there in Corinth. We aren't told who Chloe is. But she's obviously well-known in the Corinthian church. She's obviously close to Paul in his ministry. And she's obviously concerned about the problems that are going on in her church. Now, this wasn't wasn't idle gossip. But this was a genuine concern for the health and for the ministry of the body there. And so she sends word to the one whom she knows shares her care and her concern And the one who has the authority and the wisdom to to deal with the matter. And Paul had had received a whole list of questions and a whole list of of, of, uh, questions about various issues and problems in the church. Through a letter sent to him by the church. But Paul here starts with the one that he heard of firsthand. And from which all those others, as we'll see, are in some ways outgrowths or, or connected symptoms to what he deals with here. And that is their fellowship is broken. 
the, the body is seriously out of joint. They are suffering from some self-inflicted wounds. And true to what Paul will later note on in this, in this letter, when one member suffers, all the members suffer. And Paul's pain at this news is revealed in his own passionate and pastoral appeal to, to his spiritual family. He says, I appeal to you, my brothers, my sisters in Christ, based upon our, our union together with God the Father and with one another in Christ Jesus, I appeal in the name of that one Lord, our one Lord, that we all agree that there be no divisions, that we be united in mind and in judgment as one. And what I want to do as we look at this appeal is to try and answer three questions from what Paul writes in these verses. First, what's the nature of the division or the disunity in the body that he addresses? Second, what's the means by which he confronts that disunity and seeks to counteract it? And third, What's the nature of the unity that he, he encourages and appeals for us to pursue and desire to achieve? In other words, what's the, what's the problem, if we think about it from the terms of a, a, a broken body or a, a sick body, what's the problem that Paul diagnoses? What's the prescription that he gives? And then what's the prognosis for health that he appeals to? So let's look first at the problem. The reason for Paul's appeal for unity is, again, that he's received word that there is, as he says, quarreling among the, the brothers and sisters there in Corinth. The word quarreling is a, a, a bit tame. We think of when we have a quarrel that we just kind of, you know, we, we argue about something and then we go on and it goes. But the word there literally means uh, a strife. There is dissension. There is a, a rivalrous conflict going on among the people. These weren't just little ripples in the fabric. They were rips and tears in the fabric of their fellowship together. And the source seemed to revolve around these, these different factions, these different parties who had formed in the church in allegiance to various leaders in the church. And it's echoed forth in these, what, what Paul kind of holds out as these slogans, these declarations. I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I'm in Peter's camp. And then some were saying, well, forget them. We follow Christ. Now, we don't know all the details of what was causing that. We'll see some of that as we go through this letter. But what is, evidence, is evident is that they were, different people in the church were aligning themselves with a, a particular leader in the church in a way that somehow set them apart, that made them different, and in their minds made them special or superior to others in the church. They were finding, as we looked at last week, they were finding their identity, who they are and whose they are, in relationship to a person or a personality that somehow made them, again, feel special or feel right or feel like they were... The one, they had some kind of special take on things. And as Paul takes great pains to show here and again in chapter 3, it wasn't, it wasn't these leaders were, that, that were competing against each other. It wasn't like Paul was saying, you know, I'm better than Apollos, don't listen to him. Or Apollos was coming in and saying, forget Paul, you know, or Peter's sending letters and saying, don't listen to these guys, they're not Jews, let's, you know, follow what I say. 
That, none of that was going on. There was just ministry going on with these leaders, and the people were taking that opportunity to kind of gather themselves around particular groups. It was the people that were beginning to idealize and elevate the giftings of the messenger over the, over the centrality of the message. And so there were those who were there in the beginning, those who had, had come to know Christ, perhaps, through Paul's ministry, perhaps had been part of the, the core group of that, that church plant when it got started. And, and, and they were the old guard. They were like, we're Paul's people. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's the authentic starter of this, this church. But self-admittedly, Paul was not a very charismatic preacher. And so, so along comes Apollos, the second pastor of this church. And he's, uh, to, uh, he comes to fill the, fulfill the pulpit. And, and suddenly there's this young, articulate, well-educated man who, who, who studied in Alexandria. And now, man, can he preach? <laughs> he's a great preacher. And word gets around and new people start coming to the church and they're like, yeah, okay with Paul, but we like Apollos. He's the man. He speaks our language. He understands us. And then there were probably the Jewish believers who'd come over from the synagogue next door, and, and, uh, and they are like, you know, let's not forget how this whole thing actually got started. You know, God, God had a chosen people before he set up this church in Corinth. And, and what about the laws given to Moses? I mean, let's not cast those out and so we, you know, Peter's our guy. He was the one who first took the gospel to the Jews. And then, of course, there were the Jesus people. And we think, well, surely they got it right, right? We all follow Christ. But what's likely going on is these are the, these are the people who suspected any kind of human authority or human leader or tradition or anything else. And they were like, hey... We, we, we don't listen to these guys. We have Jesus. No creed but Christ. You know, we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and we listen to him. And, you know, when, when they have an issue, they just say, well, the Lord told us. And that kind of ends the discussion. To follow someone means to put yourself under their influence, under their tutelage. That word has a sense of, of belonging to. I think some translations even say that. I be, we belong to Paul or we belong to, to Apollos. And we have this innate desire, don't we, to belong, to be a part of something. We want to know and we want to be known. And so one of the ways we, we do that is we align ourselves with, or as we use the term today, we follow certain people and certain groups we get their posts, we read their books and blogs, we listen to their podcasts, we watch their shows, we value their perspective, we listen to their opinions, we quickly begin to, to maybe share with them or align with them. And in our information age, it's easy to follow all kinds of people <laughs> and all kinds of things. And oftentimes, different, different people or different groups will place greater emphasis or give particular attention to certain issues or, or teachings that resonate with us, even within the church. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to listen to different people. It's good to, to have those that we're reading, particularly as they align with Scripture, you know, especially as they align with Scripture, 
um, and, and, and can help us grow in our walk with the Lord. But the danger comes when we begin to, we begin to take pride in our, in our knowledge or our association with that person or on this issue or with that practice in such a way that, that we begin to, to, to think that anyone who disagrees with us or doesn't get on the bandwagon with us is then looked down upon and, and suspect in some ways. And the result is that we form these factions. We form our little tribes that we begin to take pride in and it, and it begins to create schism. That's the word for divide. <laughs> it begins, to, it begins to, to, to branch out into different groups that start to pit themselves against one another or their leaders against one another. In the church, we're pretty good at finding things or people to rally around. We have our favorite pastors. We have our favorite preachers and theologians. We have our favorite authors and spiritual mentors. We prefer certain worship styles or, or approaches to ministry or discipleship or missions. We, we gravitate to particular traditions and, and denominations. And we tend to gather around and hang out with others who are like us. And again, that in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But we add to that the influence of other outside allegiances we have, whether they be political or educational or economic or social. And you can easily see how the problem grows. Usually when we go through some change or, or trial, those factions are, are exposed and they're actually magnified. That's what, one of the things I think that happened in, in the time of COVID. Some of those things that we might have been able to gloss over or hide under uh, uh, the rug all of a sudden began to, to manifest themselves in the church as well as in the culture. And at the root of this problem, as Paul will go on to say as, as he gets into the letter, is really a, a kind of pride. <laughs> a pride. A kind of boasting or pride that aligns itself with a particular person or a particular part of the body of Christ and tends to play that off against others in the body such that it makes us feel smarter, it makes us feel superior, it makes us feel more spiritual or more holy in some way. And so how does Paul confront or counteract this, this divisiveness? What's his prescription for this problem? Well, he goes back to the, the common identity and connection we have together in Christ. He reminds us again of several truths that, that undermine or, or negate this fractious spirit in the church. And he does it by asking these rhetorical questions. Boys and girls, a rhetorical question is a question that answers itself. Like if I say to you, is the sky blue? You're going to say, well, yes, of course it's blue. It answers itself. And Paul asks these questions, and the first one deals with the, the wholeness of Christ himself. He's, he asks, is Christ divided? And the obvious answer is, no. <laughs> of course he's not. When Jesus came and he gave himself for us, he didn't just give a part of himself for us. <laughs> he didn't just give a certain element of himself or characteristic of himself he gave himself his whole self for us and to us the term divided here has a sense of being 
being not just dismembered or broken apart, but also parceled out, like, like being split up and, and some given over here and some given over here and parceled out. And, and Paul is saying, you know, is Christ just parceled out among you? Does some of you have part of him and the others have another part of him in some way? Jesus doesn't parcel different parts of himself out to the church. So one person or one group or one part of the church doesn't have a a corner on the market on some element of who Jesus is or what he did or anything of that sort. Jesus doesn't give his his mind to one group, his voice to another, his, his compassion to this group, his spirit over to this group. Different people or different groups might have different gifts, might have different emphasis, might have uh, different means of serving in various ways in the body of Christ. But the whole church gets the whole Christ. And when you received Jesus, you received all of him. (laughs) He gave all of himself to you. And thus who we are As, as, as those who are in him, is one body, a whole body together. If we try to separate ourselves out from other members of the body, if we see ourselves or try to, to make ourselves out to be more important or more significant than other members, it's really what Paul's saying is that's a contradiction of who Christ is. <laughs> Just as he is one, he is our one head, our one Lord in whom we have one faith. One baptism into his name. So we are one body. Christ's body is not dismembered. And so when there are divisions, when there are factions, these are, these are self-inflicted wounds that only cause harm. And Paul says, Christ is not divided, therefore neither should we. But Paul's second question deals not only with who Christ is, but what he has done, he says, deals with Christ's sacrifice. He says, was Paul crucified for you? I love how he uses that third person. You know, he doesn't say, was I crucified for you? He's putting the name there because that's what they're saying. We follow this name, this person. Was Paul crucified for you? Well, the obvious answer is no. (laughs) Of course he wasn't. It's interesting here that Paul addresses those who are claiming to follow him. (laughs) first he wants to immediately put down himself as any means of boasting he doesn't he doesn't deal with the apollos crew or the or the peter crew first he 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 goes right to those who are who are boasting in him did i lay my life down for your sins no he says jesus did no teacher can save you (laughs) No church leader can can deliver you from death or even from the problems that you face. So Paul is reminding them that, that compared to what Christ has done in laying down his life, these various distinctives, these very these giftings of various leaders and these things that they are lifting up and holding up is, is all important are nothing compared to what Christ has done. Only the gospel, only Jesus Christ crucified, as he says in, this, in that last passage, 
Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If I'm holding up anything else, if we're, if we're banking on anything else than the cross, we're missing out. To boast in or take pride in our affiliation or allegiance to any human can lead us to forget the fact that it is our sin that cost the Son of God his life. He died to to tear down the walls of hostility that separate us and divide us. So when we come and we re-erect those walls, what we're doing is we're, we're devaluing, we're denigrating the infinite worth, the infinite sacrifice that Jesus gave to buy us and to, and to build us together as one, as his church. And then Paul's third question likely touches on maybe some of the details behind some of the controversy. He says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Likely some of the early converts were boasting, again, in that fact that they had come to Christ and were, were baptized under Paul's ministry. And Paul is kind of saying here, does that make you special? <laughs> to be baptized was a means of identifying oneself with, of being marked out as a disciple of the one into whose name you were baptized. Even Apollos, when he first started preaching the gospel, he he. he he was only familiar with the baptism of John, and he had to be instructed and, and uh, further on the significance of, of what it meant to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, the person who does the baptism is not what's significant. In fact, he kind of distances himself by that. He says, he says, I didn't even baptize hardly any of you. And here I really appreciate Paul as a pastor because He's sitting there and he says, you know, I didn't baptize any of you, only Crispus and Gaius. And then all of a sudden his mind starts thinking, he goes, well, well maybe there was Stephanus and his household. Yeah, I remember baptizing them. And uh, uh, maybe there were a few others. But, but his point is that wasn't the main thing. And Paul likely preaching the gospel gave that over to, to the others, the elders in the church and others to, to do that. And, but what he's saying here is, What's important and significant is, again, not who baptizes you, but into whom you are baptized. And you weren't baptized into me, Paul says. You were baptized into the name of Jesus. And Paul's not not making baptism unimportant. He's not saying that we shouldn't be baptized or take that as something important. He goes on and, and says, no, that indeed is the case. But he's saying no matter who does it, it marks us out as belonging to Christ. Baptism is Christ's mark on you and you belong to him. Not to Paul, not to Warren or to ambassador or to any any other specific person or church, but to Jesus. So Paul's prescription for the problem of disunity is to remember there is only one whole crucified and risen Savior to whom we all belong and who we all follow together under the the gifting and the guidance of those whom he has called to to serve and to lead and shepherd in his church. But to claim allegiance to or boast in the distinctives of a particular person or a particular part 
of the body of Christ at the expense of others is to rend it apart, to inflict painful harm, and to hinder the witness on the body and the bride of Christ. Which leads us to the question of what's the, what's the nature then of this unity that we are to pursue and to seek. If, we, if that's the problem, and this is the, the, the prescription to see who Christ is and what he's done for us and to recognize who we are together in the body, what is Paul's prognosis for, for what leads to health and to healing? And he says, here's my appeal. Here's the, the doctor's orders, if you will, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind and judgment Paul is appealing here not for a uniformity not that we all have to look alike or speak exactly alike or think exactly alike but he's calling for a unity in what we say and what we think and how we live the word Agree means literally to speak the same things. Again, he's not advocating that we just mimic or, or parrot back things that we hear. But there's a sense of, of let us all be on message. <laughs> the same message. Let us have a common confession. Let us have a common profession of who we are and what is true. Let us not gather around our favorite teachers or causes or try to outdo one another with, with different hashtags or, or shout each other down with our slogans. Let us have a declaration of common allegiance. We can esteem various teachers and leaders and we can appreciate the diversity of God's church while still saying we all belong to Christ and to one another as the body of Christ. This is one of the reasons why it's really good that we're studying and, and, and going through at, a, at a, the pace that, that we're going through the Apostles' Creed. It is the foundations of our faith. It, it is for us a, uh, the truths that we hold in common, that bind us together, that we can really rally around and speak boldly and agree upon together. Is something that we can literally speak the same thing in agreement. So Paul says, let us all agree. Let there be no divisions among you, but be united in the same mind and judgment. The picture, the picture here is, is again of a, a torn garment, a rip in a, a net or, a, or, or a, a cloak or something of that sort being mended being put back together, being brought back to a wholeness for which it was intended, it, its purpose and it was intended to be used. It's also, from the body standpoint, it's a picture of a, a dislocated joint being put back. Have you ever dislocated something and somebody comes up there and you know the pain is just terrible, the athlete's got his dislocated shoulder and the trainer comes over there and is like, like that, and it's like, oh, wait. That's good. <laughs> it's back where it needs to be. There's, a, there's an immediate effect. And that's the, that's the picture that Paul's giving us here of how we are to, 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 to not have divisions, but to agree and be together 
with one another. Paul's focus is in the ongoing pursuit of health and wholeness in the body. He knows divisions will happen. We know divisions will happen. There are those outside the body who will seek to attack and disrupt the church. And and there are those within the body who will come from uh, and seek to stir up strife and cause division. There are those who intentionally want to do harm. And as we'll see later in this letter, sometimes pretty decisive action needs to be taken to to excise them from the body. (laughs) To get rid of a cancer so to speak, to perform surgery of some kind. But there are also times where things just get out of whack, where maybe even good things or godly intentions within the church can get get overblown or get corrupted or by our pride or our fear or our sense of righteousness and we we start to feel the tensions, we start to experience the struggles and we start to move towards those who think like us and speak like us and do the things that we do. We start to favor certain people or certain practices over others. I've got a a torn meniscus in my right knee right now, and it literally hinders me from walking as I want to walk and as I know I should be able to walk. But another thing that has happened in trying to to compensate for that that pain in my right knee is I started favoring my left knee, (laughs) which has been fairly healthy. But now I'm starting to feel pain (laughs) there. Not necessarily because there's anything wrong with that knee, but just the compensation and and the change is affecting other parts of the body when one part is not in agreement, so to speak, not working as it should. And unless I go and get that meniscus repaired, which I am going to do later this week, unless I pursue having all my body parts united, the pain and the disunity will only get worse. We know how that is physically. Many of us have to live with that, and that's hard. But sometimes a small break in our unity in the body of Christ spreads in a way that begins to create bigger problems in other areas. And so we can take something that can readily be dealt with by sitting down and working through or, or pursuing agreement and, 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 dis, and ignore it or dismiss it, and the next thing we know, we've got a big, much bigger issue on hand. Unless we seek to maintain and attain, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Those problems will only increase unless we seek to deal with them. So Paul calls us not just to a common profession, but to to a common mind and a common judgment, to a, a commitment to adherence to a unified common set of ideas, a way of thinking based on those ideas, a way of judging and putting into practice those those truths in our lives. Again, he's not calling for a uniformity, he's not calling for a blind, unthinking following of some doctrine or dogma but we have been given truth Jesus has revealed himself to us God has revealed himself to us in his word and in his son and we are to have this same mind Paul says the same mind together 
as he says over in Philippians, as that of Christ Jesus. <laughs> we are to, to have our minds renewed and transformed in such a way that we, we do agree on the doctrines of Scripture and on the truths of the faith and to, to think our thoughts that cohere and not contradict. Does that mean we don't wrestle with different understandings, different interpretations, even different applications of Scripture in a certain way? No, that is important. And that's important to our unity together to be able to, uh, we'll see later, the different members of the body have different gifts and so forth. And that's true within the church uh, broadly as well. But we wrestle not by pressing and pursuing what we ourselves say or think or what our favorite teacher says or think, but with what God's word <laughs> says. We strive for unity of mind and judgment based on what Christ has said to us in his word. He has given us a unifying and common truth and authority in the apostolic word of God, taught to us by the spirit of God and lived out in the power of the gospel of God. And part of our call to unity is to, is to keep pressing into that, to keep working through that together, to keep seeking to have our minds renewed and our lives transformed, our judgments guided and directed by what God has told us and revealed to us. And we can't do that on our own. It's not just an intellectual uh, uh, exercise. Paul will go on to say, we need the Spirit. <laughs> we need the Spirit of Christ to open our minds, to reveal that truth, to illumine it to us, so that, and to, to bring us to a place that we can walk in it together. And as he goes on in his letter, Paul will address many specific symptoms and struggles born out of the, the disunity and the divisions of which he speaks here. But the main issue is really one of pride that leads to quarreling and to factions. And the prognosis is to not just agree to disagree. It's not just have a tolerance of others and, a, and just compromise of truth in order to get along with each other. It is, gather, it's not just gather with those like you and let others do the same. No, he says all of you agree. Let there be no divisions. Let's work together to be of one mind and one judgment and to live that out together in the body of Christ. So, the question for us is, where are you tempted to raise your banner, to shout your slogan? To whom is your spiritual allegiance? Are you tempted to say, I follow Warren, or I follow Kyle, or I don't follow either of those guys. I follow something else. I follow John Piper, or I follow Eugene Peterson. <laughs> I love both of them. I follow both of them. I'm all for missions. I'm all for music. I'm all for mercy ministries. We should stand up for life. We should press into social justice. We should fight for religious freedom. We should seek to help the poor. Those are all, all things that we should be passionate about and that God has called us in the body of Christ to pursue together. But they should not be causes for pride. They should not be causes for division that threaten the walk and the witness of the one body of Jesus Christ. 
How are we who know Jesus to be one, to agree and be united? Jesus prayed, just as God the Father and God the Son are united together. And Jesus said in his prayer in John 17 that he will accomplish that. The glory you have given me, he prays to the Father, I have given to them. He bears our suffering, our death. He sacrifices himself on the cross for us that we might share in his glory. And Jesus says, here's the reason why, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus in us, God the Father in Jesus, all becoming, as Jesus says, perfectly one. And then he adds again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What's our greatest testimony of the good news of the gospel to the world? Our being able to walk and to think and to agree and to live as one whole body of Christ. It's not something we have to create. It's a gift that we've been given by Christ. But it is something that we have to strive to maintain and to attain and to exercise through the power of God. So let us strive for that. Let us shoot for biblical unity by seeking to understand and and adhere to the word of God in mind and heart. To seek together to take every thought captive to Christ. Let us aim for a unity of heart by, by having our lives so intertwined in such a way that we can, we can sit down and listen to one another. And we can learn from one another. Let us get to know one another in such a way that we, we genuinely feel and can exhibit care and concern for one another. That we don't come with our, our prejudices and our already preconceived notions of what that person or that that issue is going to be like. Let us expect to face division and disunity in the church, but let's not sweep it under the rug or flee from it by just going to to some other place where we're going to find division and disunity there as well. But let's deal with it with gentleness and respect and with a goal of pursuing reconciliation and wholeness. You know, we are all castaways, on our own little island of sin and self-centeredness. And God in Christ comes down and he rescues us. And he brings us together as one body, as part of his spiritual household, one building, (laughs) being built up as a dwelling place for him Together in Christ. How do we do that? It begins by all agreeing to pursue and practice that unity together. Let's pray together. Father, you are one and we thank you that you have made us one. Equip us and enable us to live out that unity together through the renewing of our minds, 
the transforming of our hearts, the opening of our lives together to what you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.